Let's start with a word of prayer. Oh God, we do indeed thank you and praise you for this glorious day that we have enjoyed, for the increasing sunlight, for the warmth of the season. May that warmth be matched by the warmth of our hearts as we are warmed by your spirit and your word on this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Two weeks ago I read from Romans 5, 1 through 5, and now I'm going to share with you uh, Romans 5, 6 through 11, which is a good um, deepening, I think, of what we learned in 1 through 5. So listen to the word of God as it comes to us from Romans. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so in these few verses that I just read, we see that Paul explains the incredible extent or the depth of God's love for believers, and the sense of which is shed abroad in their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a love that is, of course, demonstrated by the death of God's own Son for our sake. And he died, well, when did he die? He died at the right time, which means at the time that God had foreordained, the time that God had set. He did not die a day before or a day after or an hour before, or an hour after, or a minute before, or a minute after. He died at the precise moment in time that God had preordained from before the foundation of the world. And so his death was the unfolding of God's amazing plan for humanity. And he also died while we were weak. Now what does that mean, while we were weak? It means, I think, simply that... We were powerless. We could not possibly save ourselves. Um, Now, probably the best way of understanding that, because there are different interpretations, is that we are indeed weak, we are indeed powerless as against the omnipotence of God. In other words... The death of Christ took place at the precise moment of God's choosing from before the foundation of the world. Who are we to think that we can resist the will of God or stand against the will of God? It is impossible. And so, while we were weak, we were weakened by sin, we were weakened by our mortality, weakened by the fact that we are the creature and not the creator, God acted in the way and the manner that he did. And more significantly, Christ died for the ungodly, 
for the wicked, for those who are alienated from God. And that is quite an astonishing fact when we think about it, that God would send his son to die for the ungodly. We have all violated God's expectations for his creation, for humanity. We even can be said, because of sin, to be God's enemies. We act, we think, we live in contradiction to his divine, perfect will. And that is what is so extraordinary, though, about the love of God. Now, when we think about laying down one's life or doing good for someone, we can think, okay, somebody may lay down his life for a friend, for somebody he loves, certainly for somebody who um, is important to that person, but for an enemy, that is so hard to believe. Now, within the Jewish context, it was well known that one might die out of loyalty to the law or on behalf of the nation. And indeed, I think we can think of people who will die for a cause or they will die for their country. But to die for the ungodly, those whose wickedness attracts the wrath of God, was actually unthinkable. There is um, an apocryphal book called Sirach, and even though Protestants don't recognize it as being as part of the canon, nonetheless there is some wisdom and interest in knowing what it says. And Sirach chapter 12, verses 4 to 7 reads in this way, and I think in a very logical way, actually, probably something we might instinctively agree with. It says, give, give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Hold back their bread and do not give it to them, for by means of it they might subdue you. Then you will receive twice as much evil for all of the good that you have done to them. For the Most High also hates sinners and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. Give to the one who is good, but do not help the sinner. And certainly if Sirach is talking that way about simply providing them with bread or nourishment, how much more would that be the case for giving up your life for a sinner, for a bad person, for a criminal, for a foreigner in our context? Now, it's very interesting that that reading from Sirach matches the general pattern of thought in the ancient world. It was certainly not specific to the Jewish nation. It was something that people just thought was common sense. I was doing a little bit of research, and there is an amazing um, sort of parallel with the Roman philosopher Seneca. He advised giving help to those who deserved it. And Aristotle, one of the, great, the greatest possibly of the philosophers, speaks of doing good for one's friends. And so Paul's logic is running counter to all of that wisdom and our own instincts. Um, now what does Paul say in comparing our actions and motivations to the extraordinary nature of God's love? He says that we will rarely die for a righteous person, Although for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. And that's a little confusing because, I mean, isn't a righteous person a good person? Well, we have to look a little bit more closely at the context. 
the early church fathers interpreted the good as a reference to God or Christ for whom the martyrs were prepared to die. So people in the early church, and in fact even up to this very day, have been prepared to die for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the sake of God. Other people have interpreted the good as reference to, say, a generous benefactor, someone who has done something good for you. And that is different from being a righteous person in this sense. Somebody who is righteous is morally upright. And you may know of that person, but you don't have a relationship with that person. And so how likely are you to die for someone who is morally upright? But for someone who has been a benefactor to you, someone that you've had a relationship with, yes, you might be willing to die for that person. So human beings are not entirely without some sense of nobility, some sense of self-sacrifice. But the way in which we approach that is so much less than the way that God has done it, that it cannot be compared, in fact. God chose to send his son to die for our sake while we were still sinners. And in other places, Paul speaks of the love of God as, I'm sorry, the death of Christ as a proof of God's amazing love for him, Paul himself, as well as other sinners. He says in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And just as it was true for the Apostle Paul, so it is true for all of humanity. And the Apostle has already said that God, by presenting his Son as a sacrifice of atonement, demonstrated his justice while justifying sinners. And so, it is justification and it is love that is being demonstrated in this act. Now, if we look at verse 9, Paul says essentially that because Christ has died for us sinners, certain amazing things follow. We have been justified by his blood, and so how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And so... We have been justified by his blood. If we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if he is our personal Lord and Savior, if we have union with him, we are justified by his blood. Period. Full stop. And that will protect us from the wrath of God. You see, the ultimate threat confronting sinners is not sin itself, or the power of Satan, or even death, but actually the wrath of God. But being justified, that one action, that one moment in time that was, as I said, foreordained by God, our justification is linked to the death of Christ, which took place when it was supposed to take place. We therefore do not need to fear the wrath of God to come. It's not like God is sort of dangling this in front of us and saying, oh, you're justified, but you still have to worry about my wrath. You know? No, if we are justified by his blood, we do not need to fear the wrath, period, full stop, no conditions. It is a truly extraordinary development, but how typical that is of the extravagant love of God 
the unimaginable love of God. That He would send His Son to die for our sake and then ensure that we need not fear His righteous wrath for our sins. Now the second outcome of Christ's death for sinners, and Paul mentions this in in, uh, verse 10, is that we are also saved by His life. And so... You know, what does that mean, really? What does that mean? Well, there have been many discussions about that. And one thing it does not really mean, though, is that we are saved by the life of Christ as he lived it on earth. I mean, of course, that was extraordinarily important. He was a moral example. He did wonderful acts of healing. He drove out demons. He did all sorts of things. But it was not that life that can save us because there have been many great people in history who have done great things and have helped people. In fact, um, when I was doing a little bit of research for this, Karl Barth had written very emphatically that everything that Christ did in his life is meaningless if we do not consider his death. And so if Christ simply lived and his death did not have any particular significance, if it was not an atonement for our sin, then all of the rest of what he did really is not that important, or at least it's not more important than the life of a great prophet or a great teacher or anything like that. However, the life of Christ, as we well know, is not limited to his time on earth. It is something that goes on eternally. It continues now. And so Christ is alive. He is living with the Father. And he is interceding for us. Christ continually intercedes with us. He prays for us. He advocates for us with the Father. And it is that fact that even more so saves us. In other words, death, of course, was not the end. That one event was not the be-all, end-all. The fact that Christ is still alive and still loves us and still advocates for us is of incredible importance. And then Paul concludes this section of the letter, um, at chapter, I'm sorry, at verse 11, by adding, uh, we also... Here it is. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And I've touched on that issue before, reconciliation. What is that in relationship to justification? I mean, they are unbreakably connected, but they are not identical. Justification is that act of pardon. It simply means that legally we are declared Righteous, um, The righteousness of Jesus Christ is basically given to us as a cover for our sin. Reconciliation means that a right relationship is restored between us and God. The relationship, as we know, has been broken by sin, our inherited sin and our own sinful actions. And yet, the death of Christ and his continuing life allows us to be reconciled to God in a wonderful, warm, personal relationship that we can benefit from even now, although we will not experience its fullness 
until the time that we join Christ in his fullness with the Father. And again, that's such an amazing concept, it's hard to, um, to describe adequately. But just keep in mind that reconciliation and justification belong together, but they are not identical. Just as, as an aside, sanctification cannot be disconnected from justification either, but it is also not identical. Justification is that one action, that one moment in time in history, that one moment in which that reality becomes ours. Reconciliation, I've talked about, restoring the right relationship, and that is a lifelong process. And so is sanctification, in which we are being conformed more and more in the image and likeness of Christ. And so it is astounding, really, that God would do all of this for us, that while we were sinners, Christ would die for us, while we were unrighteous, while we were ungodly, while we were enemies of God, and yet... That is what the Bible said he did, and that is confirmed for us by the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And how we receive the Holy Spirit, again, that is the choice of God. That is the will of God. Because we are so weak, we are so insignificant, we cannot resist it. If it is God's will for us to have it, we will have it. And conversely, if it is not God's will for us to have it, we will not have it. And that gets into, of course, to the great mystery of God's sovereignty and God's choices. But I feel in my heart, and I think you do too, that we have been chosen and elected by God, and that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and makes the love of God so effectual in our lives and in our lives to come. And so what a great thing that we can celebrate this evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.